So good evening, everyone. It is my pleasure to welcome you all tonight to another Tuesday Night Rheumatology of this great month, uh, certainly biased on, on the excitement of uh, this campaign of Make Room for PMR, which I think uh, a lot of our speakers and a lot of people have been following the content for this month uh, would understand why we really need to make room for PMR and bring up this discussion. This month has been filled with a lot of different and important discussions about what is a role, what can we do, and how can we continue improving the care of uh, patients living with PMR? So I'm certainly excited to invite, uh, to welcome everyone to this spe uh, special talk on steroid-sparing agents in PMR. I'm Sebastian Satui. I'm uh, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I have a team and very um, excited for the panel, all the panels that we have today uh, that will be covering the topics and hopefully answering all of the questions that we will try to be following up on the chat. Uh, a special thanks to Sanofi, who is actually supporting this um, content and this campaign for this month, again, sh showcasing and highlighting the importance of our role in rheumatologists and the care of patients with PMR. And also thanks to Room Now for the Trust, as well as my other kind of editorial colleagues, David Liu and Sarah Mackey, who are also joining tonight. So with that, I'm just going to go ahead and uh, let our speakers introduce, our panelists introduce themselves before we dig a little bit more into this, um, which I think is going to be a fantastic discussion today. And with that, I'll, I'll kind of hand it on to Dr. Aspire first. Yeah, hi. Thanks so much for doing this, and thanks so much for hosting this and for focusing on PMR. Um, we've all known this is important um, as a topic, and it's nice to see it getting the attention our patients need this to get. Um, I'm Robert Spira. I'm from the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York. Um, I have a particular interest in vasculitis and polymyalgia, among other inflammatory diseases. And I've been, you know, fortunate to have been involved in um, uh, clinical trials in polymyalgia. Okay. Why don't we go next with uh, Dr. Mackey? Hi, I'm Sarah Mackey, and I'm a rheumatologist from Leeds, UK, and I have a research interest in giants of arthritis and polymyalgia rheumatica. Okay. I forgot to say also, I guess, good evening, good morning, and good very late at night for Sarah as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Anisha, do you want to go next? Sure. Hi, I'm Anisha Dua. I'm a adult rheumatologist at Northwestern University um, with a clinical interest in vasculitis and PMR. Okay. And last but not least, uh, David. Yes, David Liu here from Melbourne, Australia. Long time room now, correspondent and uh, aficionado of polymyalgia rheumatica. Well, uh, thank you all for joining. And be before we actually dig in a little bit into the conversation and some of the results from the 24-hour poll that we have today, uh, answering some of our the questions and, and kind of a little bit reflecting what current practice is, I, I wanted to bring up a question because I think this is a conversation that we don't have that often, right? And talking about steroid sparing agents in, in PMR, and I think uh, PMR certainly has differences um, made several differences between a, a lot of our other conditions. So I wanted to give everyone the opportunity first on getting your thoughts on why has it taken us so long to actually have this conversation or at least really have this conversation in the spotlight. I don't think, uh, again, it's, it's something that we discuss as much. I probably have a very biased panel here as well, which we all think that we need to, but um, does someone want to take a step at that first? 
I'm, I'm happy to take a stab at it. I have a sort of interesting historical perspective on this. Um, my dad actually wrote the first, was one of the authors on the first um, US-based publication on polymyalgia. And I actually <laughs> pulled that publication recently for a talk I was giving. It was an article in Arthritis and Rheumatism in 1966. The entity had been described in the UK actually. And then there was one um, publication, I think from Scandinavia, but it was very vague syndrome. And he even, you know, he described 14 patients and basically they were hospitalized at the time. So they were pretty limited. Um, they were treated with high doses of salicylates and corticosteroids, but the tone of the publication was trying to make the argument that this was a distinct disease entity because that hadn't been recognized. There was no, at the time it was called the American Rheumatology Association. There was no entity that covered it. So it took some time for this to get really um, recognition as a disease entity, um, even though people were suffering and it seemed relatively easy to treat. Um, and really the association with GCA is what sort of gave it a lot of muster and we've come a long way with that. Um, but I think then as we developed other better therapies through our understanding of diseases like that were damaging like rheumatoid arthritis or psoriatic arthritis, this, there was a biology to this that was becoming understood, but this sort of fell to the wayside a little bit also, um, because it seemed relatively easy to treat with steroids until we sort of captured that. So that's way too long-winded of an answer when there are really other very smart people who have their own perspectives on it. But I think it was that this was not recognized as a damaging disease, and it is not a damaging disease if you just take the physiology, it's the holistic experience, which includes the medications that makes it a damaging disease. So it's like this concept, Anisha, like we use in vasculitis damage index. It captures steroid, you know, the medicine and the disease. So this wasn't a disease that was damaging as opposed to some of our others. Well, Anisha, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I, no, a little bit of, a... of course, I, I agree with, with what Rob was describing. And I think um, part of the lack of efforts, I guess, into trying to figure out ways to come up with other targets or, or treat the disease outside of prednisone is partly because with a lot of our, at least with the vasculitis, we're using such high doses, right? So I think a lot of the initial efforts in terms of steroid sparing drugs or steroid replacement drugs have really um, come from disease states where we're, where we're starting out with, you know, pulse steroids, high dose steroids, where we're seeing a lot of those toxicities from, from steroids build up pretty quickly over time. And we all know that people with PMR are on prolonged steroids for many, many years in real life. Um, and there is damage that happens from that again. Um, but because it hasn't, it hasn't been recognized as something that, you know, affects mortality. And because we're not using high, high doses of prednisone up front, I think there's been maybe just a little bit less investment in um, finding targeted treatments to to really minimize some of the toxicities that we all know our patients experience. So, yeah. Sarah and David, I think in the in, uh, probably in both of your settings, particularly in the UK, there's certainly a, a bit of a difference between the kind of the partnership between PCPs or GPs uh, and rheumatologists. And I don't I don't know if this is do you feel, have a different feel for why this conversation has not been kind of more upfront compared to some of our other, other conditions or there are other reasons for it? I think in the UK, there's been a, um, for, me, for me, very many years, and there still is a shortage of rheumatologists. So we have fewer rheumatologists per head of population than most European countries. Um, and um, it's better now, but in, 
you know, a couple of decades ago, there really there were barely enough rheumatologists to deal with all the patients with RA. Um, and so I think there was a prioritization. So, well, the people with RA will destroy their joints. People with PMR will not destroy their joints. So we better see the ones with RA. Um, and then there was also the perception that um, PMR is the, the phrase that was used was benign and self-limiting. So benign and that it didn't destroy joints, but self-limiting in that it was said that the majority of patients would be off steroids within a relatively short period of time and be well. So, the you know, there's this kind of what we might now call the two year myth that you, well, you're two years and you're done and you don't have to worry about it. And the PMR will have gone away. Um, but none of this debate really captures the impact on the patients of PMR. It doesn't really capture the pain and the stiffness that they're experiencing. Just because someone's not prescribed them steroids anymore doesn't even mean the disease has gone away necessarily. And so really the kind of impact of PMR on patients' lives is not really well understood. And because rheumatologists weren't seeing the majority of these patients, they were only seeing the ones that GPs were referring to them, that there's been a bit of a self-perpetuating cycle that... Um, and endless arguments about who's allowed to diagnose PMR, that's the other thing, um, which is not very helpful because then that distracts us from the question of how we need to treat people with PMR. Because if we accept it as a real disease, then it needs to have better treatment and we need to figure out how to do that. I'd just add in there, I mean, I think in Australia, the perspective is very similar. But it's. I think it's also the one thing we haven't talked about are that steroids are easy. Steroids are the fast food of the therapeutic landscape in that they're cheap. You get an immediate uh, hit, immediate satisfaction. If you don't think about the long-term consequences, then um, maybe it's not so bad, although that's probably not entirely true. You might feel a little bit bloated after the fast food. You might feel a bit bloated after the steroids. The fact is, is that it takes work to get something better into you. And I think that's where we're at. And I guess I think we, we beat up on this um, a lot, but if we look back at the history of other um, rheumatic diseases. It took time to get to the point where um, we had steroid sparing options higher up on the algorithm. And I think we've, we've just been, um, I think the, the the voyage of discovery has been slower in polymyalgia rheumatica, but now is a time when it's starting to accelerate rightfully. And we should, we do know, we look at other diseases and we know we can do better. So I think that's where we're at right now, looking at other diseases, knowing that for our our people, uh, you know, the, our patients, the people living with polymyalgia rheumatica, we need to do better by them to give them the experience and lifestyle they deserve. I think those are all great thoughts, also with kind of different perspectives from uh, different areas as well, which is great. Uh, I think with that, why don't we go ahead and we can show the slides of um, the survey that has been done in the past, so again, 24 hours. Uh, I would imagine, again, this is mostly rheumatologists. So that's, of course, something to take into account when we're talking about PMR, which, as I usually kind of explain, we, I think we get a little bit of a biased view of this as well, right? Um, so this is always, I think, important to take into account because this is going to be primary rheumatologists, but we have 248 responses from 45 different countries, 60% U.S., and you can see there in the map, again, mostly representation from the U.S., uh, also Canada, South America, which I'm very happy to see Peru lit, uh, lit up there as well, uh, among other countries as well in Europe and, and then Africa and Australia. So uh, can we see the next slide? Okay, so this is the first question that was posed. Um, and uh, is anyone kind of surprised about that? So if and we, kind of rheumatologists were asked, and again, uh, what percentage of PMR patients do you use a steroid sparing agent with? And predominantly, you know, 
small set sum, so 10 to 30%. Um, then the second kind of option, most common option was few less than 10. And then um, many, so more than 30% take into account that that could be 50 or 70, and also taking into account that these are probably going to be rheumatologists, 26.7%. If someone kind of impressed by this, uh, does this reflect a little bit of your practice as well? Um, uh, should we be doing more? Uh, Well, in the um, in the UK, um, you can look at the description of PMR patients in Zoe Paskin's paper, um, where she's looking at fracture risk in patients with PMR and GCA, and in that was in UK primary care based data, and only six percent of patients with PMR in the UK were receiving methotrexate. So um, that's a lot lower. <laughs> that's a lot lower even than. Um, uh, what we see here, um, I think the 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 few of less than ten percent would be like fairly across the population in of patients with PMR in the UK. Then we'd all be in the pink. Um, but that's mainly, I think, because they're not referred to rheumatologists. But then even once they get to rheumatology, because they may get there rather late, um, they may not be initiated on methotrexate because time has gone on and it's perceived that it's kind of too late to make a difference. So it may depend on where you are and what your referral pathways are in the world. Yeah, I, I would agree that that's all true. And, you know, very much your referral pathways and the severity of the disease you're seeing. But I think this doesn't surprise me because part of the reason that you're not seeing more use of steroid sparing medications is because of how effective or not effective our steroid sparing therapies were. Like even the methotrexate data, um, really could be looked at um, very ambivalently in terms of how effective it was. So that same group, I think it was um, an Italian group, I think it was Caporelli, um, and they followed up on that publication. I don't have this at my fingertips, but I think they followed up, there was like an annals paper, and then they followed up on it a few years later. And if you looked at where people were a few years down the road, which we know is still relevant to this group of patients, the steroid sparing benefit you had seen in the initial publication, which by the way, was a numerical difference in steroid dose, but not a difference, if I recall correctly, in adverse effects events related to steroid use. Um, and it was not in an era where we were capturing quality of life and function PROs, um, but even that steroid sparing benefit disappeared. So I think some of the reluctance was you're looking at an older group of patients, you have a not spectacularly helpful steroid sparing medication. Um, maybe it does something, and I think we've all used it. Um, and I do think you're, it'll be interesting what the percentage of what people use are, but it's not an easy group of patients necessarily to give methotrexate to in terms of comorbidities and renal function and other things going on. So it's a matter of how much bang you get for your buck. And I would venture to say that depending on access and things like that, you know, this same question could result in a very different answer five years from now or two years from now. Any other thoughts on, on that? Was this, uh, David, initially, does this really reflect kind of your practice uh, mm. I would overall? Is that David, were you going to answer? 
No, you go. You go first. No, I was um, sorry. I didn't know if you, if you called on David. Um, so I think I think that this does kind of this equal split kind of around these different. I use it in some patients, a few patients, many patients. I think it reflects the fact that, again, yeah, this is being answered by rheumatologists. So we are getting those patients who have not had that nice, clean course where they, you know, came down nicely off of steroids. And I think there's a lot. And when when you first establish care with somebody, uh, a lot of times you're going to still try to manipulate the medicine that they're on. And so if they're on prednisone, you're going to go up and down a little bit and not everyone's going to introduce methotrexate. When we talk about, you know, do you use a steroid sparing agent? There haven't been many steroid sparing agents approved for use of, in PMR. So I think that probably influences, um, you know, the percentage of patients that are going to be on a steroid sparing agent um, up until this point. So I think the numbers seem reasonable, but I think in my practice, probably by the time they get to me, um, I, I'm using a steroid spraying agent and I would probably be in the many category. I think the only other thing I'd add is, and I think just thinking about your data from, well, your work from insurance data, Sebastian, thinking about that, I suspect that there's a lot of heterogeneity in practice, even within um, specific um, healthcare systems. It's, an, it's clearly an evolving space. Um, and that as individual clinicians, um, I think as their, their, their therapeutic approach evolves, we will see this change substantially, even over a five-year horizon. Yeah, I think things certainly are changing. And, and thank you for like, talking about the, that paper, which certainly actually reflects a little bit and, and is a bit in line with this, the answers to the survey as well, which makes me feel better as well and reassured. So, and I think sometimes the concern as well, patients don't get access to steroid sparing agents because they don't get to rheumatology, right? But then even here, you're seeing certainly some variability in that. So when someone does get to rheumatology, and this is kind of in line with our next question, if we can actually show, is so how many strikes uh, do, you, uh, do you give a patient, right? So how many uh, failed attempts to tapering do you usually kind of rheumatologist clinicians are usually considering for everyone. And most of them, it's either it's kind of split between two and one, right? We're talking they're almost above like more than three quarters. It's then followed by after multiple failures and then just a you know very small group, if any, that are saying haven't used steroid sparing. What, how, again, and this is the part which gets tricky, right? Because I think for some of us, we may actually see someone, whether it's their first flare or maybe our first flare under our watch, it, it might not be the case for everyone, right? Um, we might have some patients that there's significant delay in them seeing rheumatologists. So how do you all kind of incorporate this? And, and do you feel this, again, it's usually how, what your rule is with taking care of patients with regards to relapses, either under your watch or overall? Sarah, do you want to start with that? Since I, I, I think certainly the referral patterns might be a little bit different as well compared to the U.S., which you already kind of been talking about that. Yeah, so um, I think sort of in the UK, maybe um, it's probably quite similar to the um, it's probably quite similar to the practice here. So there would be sort of maybe one in five rheumatologists might start um, a steroid sparing agent after after the first flare. Um, maybe one in five would definitely not start a steroid sparing agent after the first flare and maybe the remainder might sometimes after the first flare and it depends on the comorbidities um, because usually they've been referred to rheumatology for a reason because they have osteoporosis or they have diabetes or they're getting side effect from the steroids so the rheumatologist is 
you know, often feels they want to do something um, and offer something different. Um, and actually, though, if you then ask GPs, um, then maybe a third of GPs just would never refer a patient after one flare of PMR. They would wait for them to flare a couple of times. They'd wait for them to be maybe two years on steroids before they make that referral. So um, so I think, um, you know, the UK rheumatologists see a sort of a quite highly selected sub population of patients with PMR and there's usually a reason usually the GP wants to refer in case they've got the diagnosis wrong they don't they're not particularly aware of, that there even exist steroid sparing options whereas the rheumatologist says okay well is the diagnosis correct and then after that if, once they're happy that the diagnosis is correct and it's like well now and now how do we how do we treat this and of course the more they're worrying that the diagnosis might be wrong the more reluctant they're going to be to start disease modifying drugs as well so there's it's quite complex because of the referral pathways being so slow and protracted um communication is difficult it's difficult to go back and unpick what happened at the at the time of diagnosis maybe over a year ago or two years ago um it's um it, it's often very difficult for rheumatologists in the uk to figure out what to do with these patients yeah. I think some of it also depends on, I think it depends on all of that. And definitely the comorbidities are a huge part of it. And when you see the patient in their journey, um, you know, one thing that I sometimes throw out there, that's not a popular idea, but I think it's not crazy. And that this would affect how you, what the timing when which you would throw, a, you know, try a steroid sparing drug is there are some patients with PMR who do very well, it's, it's a smaller number, but if you look, let's say at an organized experience like the um, SPARE trial, this was the trial of um, tocilizumab and PMR where they took new onset patients and they tapered them off steroids over 11 weeks, okay? Um, so people on placebo, let's just think about the placebo patients in that study. With an 11 week taper, they found that at 26 weeks, or 24 weeks, they didn't have a long enough outcome probably, but about close to a fifth of them were in remission off steroids. So what some clinicians do is they'll try to taper aggressively early, recognizing that if there's one flare, you raise the dose and then the person has declared themselves as not being in that subgroup. So in that case, you know, if I'm seeing a patient really early, I'm more likely to wait till the second flare until I think about putting somebody on a steroid sparing drug, but it really depends on what their journey was to me. So if they had already been on steroids and had flares beforehand, their flare with me isn't their first flare and they've already been on it for a while. So they're not in that subgroup of very easy to treat patients, which I want to emphasize is a minority, but not a trivial minority. Yeah, I'll just chime in because I know me and me and Rob have talked about this in the past about sort of what is what what is the steroid taper, mm -hmm. and so um, you know I'm I'm not as I'm scared, and so I'm not as aggressive with with pulling down the steroids that fast. But I think the two things that really weigh into my decision in terms of um, you know when how many failed attempts is really about what was the taper, and you know like if it we've all received patients with active disease who have had various prednisone regimens. Um, so that's going to weigh into my decision about whether to add a steroid spraying agent. And the second thing is really the patient and the comorbidities. It's 
it, like with meth, with rheumatoid arthritis, like we were talking about before, you know, we say this, you know, adding methotrexate, for example, is a disease modifying agent, right? It's going to help prevent specific damage. You can't just be on prednisone for rheumatoid arthritis. So are these drugs disease modifying? Do they prevent damage? And, and you know, like how do you weigh some of the comorbidities of the, these different medications? And so patients can be reluctant to try some of the newer medicines they've heard of prednisone their whole life, even if they don't like it. So a lot of different factors are going to play into like that other part of it, but it really has to do with the patient and their comorbidities and their comfort level with other agents. Those are probably the two main things that weigh into, into when I'm going to start it or after how many flares. The only thing I'd, I'd add is I'd like to say that I like to think that eventually we'll get to the point where we have more strategy trials and that we get better at a treat-to-target approach or a standardized reduction approach and to the point where we can say that this is the dose which, which in this situation where this justification would be the, with the case and take a more scientific approach to it than the uh, kind of the gestalt qualitative type approach that we have to take right now. Um, but if we're going to do that, if we're, gonna, if we're going to be able to achieve that, then we need to invest in the right type of investigation. I think funders need to invest in that. And for that, we probably need to make sure that PMR gets valued in terms of the damage that both disease and therapy might be a, might impact on, on individual patients. But before we turn to the next question though, since we, I think, again, a lot of our conversation is, is about steroid under badness, uh, which I think certainly keeps in mind and drives a lot of the practice and with the pros and cons to it as well. But taking, Patients who we are concerned about either prolonged use of steroids or kind of badness coming from it, right? Uh, what clinical features, what non-directly steroid-related factors, and this is more of a quick fire, kind of really bring you to think of steroid-sparing agents early, somehow earlier on? Uh, what, what do you see in a patient that says, this is someone who I would have a low threshold uh, kind of, or, or be concerned quite actively early as a kind of a pearl from, from all of you to the audience? Anything clinically that kind of makes a concern early on? We're not going to say GCA symptoms because I think that would be certainly the, the very kind of simple, like the, the, the knee-jerk reaction, but anything else that you see in a patient that makes a concern about it, about it, the patient earlier? You mean, uh, you mean is there a subgroup of patients where right off the bat at the time of diagnosis, are there features that would make you want to add a, add a steroid? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Off, like right at the beginning? Yeah. Or, or very early on where you don't want to kind of wait for a strike to and just like, okay, again, an outside of the steroid, it's a steroid concern. I've got no data for this, but I'd be interested in the panel's thoughts. But my general experience is that, well, I, um, we tend to use a BSR um, uh, prednisolone wean. And in amongst it, in that um, period of time when you've got a patient with a stable dose of steroid, how quickly they seem to achieve remission, the patients who are slow to achieve um, symptomatic remission in that period of time do seem to, and I don't know whether that's just that we're inadequately controlling disease and that it may be they're being led down by BSR um, weaning regimen, but I do wonder whether those patients are more likely to end up needing steroid sparing therapy. I'll add, I think if somebody has really significant peripheral inflammatory arthritis, and like a really high CRP, that might be a patient where at least I would, I might not start it right up front, but that would be probably a, like a subset of patients where I would probably be pretty quick to add on a steroid sparing agent. That would, those are probably two factors that might 
Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. And then it gets a little bit into this semantic thing of when are you dealing with rheumatoid of later onset? And when are you dealing with PMR? I don't actually know that there's data that peripheral inflammatory disease um, makes it more likely to have a prolonged, more prolonged course of uh, glucocorticoids, you know, or more flares. Um, but it definitely makes it more likely that they may ultimately be one of these people who are really rheumatoid arthritis of later onset. Um, so I think clinically, I take the same approach, approach as Anisha does with that. Um, I don't know that that's really data-driven necessarily. Um, and I would agree with you, David, of course, if somebody's not responding um, quickly, but I would also then question my diagnosis. Again. And that, that's a kind of patient where I'd wonder whether they're really an underlying large vessel vasculitis patient or something like that, if they're not getting an ad adequate disease control you know, with the kinds of doses of steroids that are in the guidelines. So this next question goes into what really, when in, in patients with PMR, when might you add a steroid sparing agent? And I think that that's been of people certainly answered in high dose steroids. Although again, I think that definition as we keep learning is as terrible as we can get. And that the previous kind of PNR actually, again, showcased a little bit of that. Uh, second, followed by with first layer, then after six months of steroids. But as we also know, that might not necessarily be the case. And a lot of patients might get to a, a rheumatologist way later in their disease. GCI-like symptoms, I think it's certainly not a no-brainer for anyone. And, and diagnosis, a, a small group, but certainly will, and it's probably driven, I would imagine, by high risk of glucorticoid toxicity. Um, what, what, what is kind of the deal breaker? So high dose of steroids, again, that means a lot of things. What is the usual dose for all of, all of you where you say, okay, this is, this is too much for me? I know this was a discussion and we got a, a kind of a sense of this uh, by the last DNR, but I don't know if anyone has a specific number where you certainly say, this is too much for me and I uh, kind of really throws me uh, away and I want to consider a steroid sparing agent around this dose if someone keeps on, stays on it, like reach that barrier. So to me, for me, um, I my standard is to start at 15 milligrams of prednisolone. If that's not sufficient, then one in five patients, maybe one in 10 will need 20 milligrams. That's OK um, if that works. Um, anything above that makes me a little bit nervous. Um, anything if they need above 20 milligrams of prednisolone to control their symptoms, that makes me nervous, makes me think, is it PMR? If it is very bad PMR, then do we need a steroid sparing agent? Um, then there's if if they then have difficulty coming down off that dose once they've got controlled their symptoms after a couple of weeks if then then the symptoms start coming back very early on tapering they can't even get down to 10 milligrams um then i start to also worry a little bit um and then also it's just really you know a, a dose is just a number um so you just have to ask your patients how are you feeling on the steroids and if people are feeling wonderful then that's absolutely fine they can they can quite happily be feel wonderful for a couple of weeks and we can manage the long-term side effects and that's fine but there are some patients who really cannot tolerate you know even sometimes five milligrams of prednisolone they have terrible neuropsychiatric side effects you know total insomnia um or they're terrified about their bones with with reason from the data if they've got all prevalent fractures if they've you know already got osteoporosis if it's been very troublesome already so um you know there there are some patients who i because of concerns about stereotoxicity i, I would go in quite early um but with the majority i tend to take it step by step and i i would tend to wait a little bit before we talk about dmards 
um, really um, because it's enough for them to cope with having PMR and learning to live with PMR without me then putting in a DMARD as well. And I, I'm one of the, I would wait, I, I would not tend to go in at diagnosis in the vast majority with, the, I would tend to see how they go, see if, see how they're relapsing, see how they're going with the steroids on the, on the first, um, rather than the, rush into DMARD necessarily. Any other thoughts on what is a high dose or what are the other kind of scenarios? So high, yeah. oh, sorry, carry on. Oh, go ahead, Sarah. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> yeah, so I guess it's um, high. Yeah, so my shorthand is high, high, high of more than 20 is high for me, but then you've got to find out what is high for the patient in terms of toxicity. Okay. So that, that is how I would see it, yeah. Um, I kind of see it exactly the same, like to the details of the numbers. So I'll usually start on 12 to 16 milligrams of methylprednisolone. Um, sometimes we have to go up on the dose to about 20. Um, I'm uncomfortable getting above that, even though, you know, our guidelines, I think, sort of outline, you know, maybe starting on as much as 30 milligrams of prednisone or its equivalent, but I get uncomfortable with the diagnosis if it's more than 20 of methylprednisolone. Um, some of this also depends on the patient, the size of the patient, et cetera, but um, it's this balance between their propensity for steroid side effects um, and what's going to help them in terms of how we figure out that initial dose. But if I'm getting above that kind of dose, I'm first of all running scared that I'm missing underlying GCA or something else. And um, and secondly, though, then it's just so unusual to have refractory G uh, PMR at those doses um, that I'm cautious, but I'd have a low threshold for a steroid sparing drug. And if you look at that slide, you know, that, that, that pie graph, essentially they're saying that they're talking, it sounds like, about patients who likely have GCA or large vessel vasculitis, because if 44 and a half percent of them require high doses of steroids. Those may be those patients with large vessel vasculitis um, that present like polymyalgia, but don't have cranial symptoms. Mm -hmm. And that plus the 12.7% with GCA-like symptoms, you're talking close to 60% of the group, um, might be large vessel vasculitis patients in terms of who they're talking about. So I think we're going to skip to the next couple of questions because we have a lot to cover. And so and and both of these questions actually go in kind of a similar uh, picture a little bit. Is uh, so if we can actually put both, I think that that's going to be good. Uh, the first question goes into what is your preferred steroid sparing drug? And I, I think Richard has already covered a little bit about this as well. And there are some comments in the chat and questions, which I would also encourage the audience that if you have any questions, please just let us know and just put them in the chat box. Um, methotrexate being the, mo the most commonly used one by kind of people answering the question, 84.8%. Uh, as it has actually been pointed out though, that, uh, I'm sorry, in the Q&A, put your questions. But, um, but methotrexate, as has been pointed out, you know, it's certainly this, this, there's some positive uh, results, certainly not that, that the striking drug that we would want for our patients, but also kind of pointed out that it has been underdosed, uh, probably under the concern of the age group, which at the same time, I think for patients with RA, we probably still use higher doses as well. So that's what we're seeing. Is that what kind of everyone's reflecting in your practice? Again, this is before 2023. You know, the landscape is probably going to change and the approval of medications is certainly going to change. And we'll talk a little bit about kind of what the approval has been, um, how it's, how, 
you know, the uh, cerilumab has been approved for the use in, in PMR. But uh, Anisha, this is kind of where at this uh, pre-2023, how your practice has been mostly been? Yeah, I, I think um, the majority of the time I would use methotrexate, of course, if there's like severe renal disease or certain comorbidities, then I might avoid that. But um, but I didn't use a lot of, and then I might opt for leflunomide, especially if there's a peripheral arthritis, but I didn't use a lot of azathioprine personally at all in, in this disease. So mostly methotrexate up until recently. And just really quickly to, I know we don't have as much time, but just on the last thing, Rob, why do you, and I agree with the numbers. I start with about 15 and I get nervous above 20, but Rob, why do you use Medrol instead of um, prednisone? And I know in the guidelines, some people use IM and I was just wondering what. It's just, there are these patients sometimes, they're, they're not common who respond to methylprednisolone or prednisolone and not to prednisone. The liver has to hydroxylate prednisone into prednisolone. And there are some people who seem not to do that. Well, we actually did a small study trying to see if we could actually demonstrate that in clear non-prednisone responders who responded to methylprednisolone, and we could not show differences in hydroxylation. But it's an anecdotal thing. It just saves me a step of uh, saying, you know, let's transition you to methylprednisolone or prednisolone. Thanks. Uh, I think azathioprine should, and this is a point, uh, probably there's, if I recall correctly, this uh, there was some evidence prior to this as well, even though in the previous recommendations, it was actually not mentioned. I think, I think we've all seen a lot of uh, hydroxychloroquine as well around. Uh, Leflunomide, it certainly, I know, Sarah, you can talk a little bit about this, but um, it's something that I think you're using, there's some evidence for it as well. There's been some a trial going on. Yes, yeah, so- there have been a couple of case reports um, which have claimed uh, amazing effects for leflunamide in PMR and GCA. So the case series, mm -hmm. or case, not case reports. So one was Andreas Diamantopoulos and the other one was Bhaskar Dasgupta. Um, so they published those a couple of years ago. And um, Lisbeth Brower and her group have been running a uh, leflunamide trial um, in new onset PMR um, in the Netherlands. Um, and we're very interested to see what the results of that are going to be but I, I have not seen um, any results of that yet. So, um, but I think um, in the UK, perhaps influenced by sort of Bhaskar Dasgupta and um, his experience, probably if everyone's going, everyone, everyone goes to methotrexate first in the UK, absolutely everybody, 96%, but then probably 50%, nefludamide is probably second line for most, maybe 50% would say yes, nefludamide also, we would use that, and then azathioprine is third, and everything else is small print, um, where we are, and then um, oral methotrexate, the majority, and not everyone will go for subcut methotrexate in the UK, but, um, but quite a fair proportion would switch to subcut if necessary. And Sarah, did you want to, I think Sebastian was wondering whether you wanted to talk about uh, sterling PMR, in fact. Oh, mm -hmm. well, we can talk about sterling PMR. So, um, so sterling PMR is a uh, randomized clinical trial, which um, has um, just uh, been got off the ground. It's just got, had its ethical approval through and it's funded by um, the uh, UK National Institute for Health and Care Research and um, the Australian M NHMRC has given parallel funding. So we're recruiting patients from the UK and Australia. Um, and um, this is patients with PMR who have relapsed and we're uh, an open label trial, randomizing them to um, either DMARDS strategy or steroid taper by alone. And the DMARD, um, the first line would be methotrexate. And if they fail that, they would then go to Mm -hmm. 
So um, that's, you know, that's just exciting data to come. So that will be data to come. Um, but um, that's really, I think, it's it's sort of testing a strategy which we're sort of using in practice anyway, and we all sort of believe in, but we um, historically haven't really felt we've had sufficient evidence because the Caporali trial used such small doses of methotrexate. It's really, you know, mm-hmm. they did show reduction in relapses and they did show a reduction in cumulative steroid dose. And there's only 72 patients. So there was no way they would show a reduction in steroid side effects. You know, you don't power trials for toxicity. Um, so, you know, there, there's some evidence, but it's, you know, the, the do- usually the doses we like to use, the doses that work are a bit bigger than 10 milligrams weekly. And someone with reasonable okay. function, you'd want to take you use a proper dose. So in sterling, we want we're going to start at 15 milligrams weekly and aim for 20 milligrams weekly. So it seems again, and then David, you could take a stab at this one with your last question. And I uh, we share some, I guess, partial excitement about methotrexate, uh, but not full. But now when there are kind of the in the survey it was asked. Who and what setting are you going to use cerilumab? Most people are actually mentioning after methotrexate failure, uh, followed by if again high dose steroids, which we've also discussing what is the definition for and what does that really mean for patients as well, and then with relapse in the ideal setting, because of course we have there the approval which is right now in the U.S. Uh, only, uh, which is for uh, adults uh, and uh, patients with PMR who have inadequate response to steroids or who can you know type disease or relapsing or resistant disease, um, where would you ins- kind of insert the use of IL-6 inhibition in your, in your care of patients with PMR? Mm, yeah, and I hope we do talk about um, newly diagnosed PMR um, later in the discussion. Hopefully we get time for that. Oh, uh, we're going to get to that. <laughs> but um, so look, I, I think that, um, so we're, and we in Australia are obviously involved with sterling PMR as well. And I think that um, while I think that SAFA's the, um, Ultimate, the SAF study ultimately is a landmark study in in polymyodramatica, and that's that's really the I think the turning point in the way that we approach um, PMI therapeutics. It would not hurt us to have additional P, um, therapeutic options. I think uh, it's hard for me to speak to the insurance landscape in in the US, but I, I'm sh- and I'm sure that these survey results here do reflect the fact that um, people anticipate that they may well um, have to try some patients on methotrexate. Um, before they might access cerilumab, that we have to acknowledge, and, and maybe um, that may that may well be appropriate. Sometimes, probably, I think a lot of patients would benefit going straight to cerilumab if it was um, uh, certainly if it was accessible. But I think that may well be the optimal um, situation for them. But it may be the case that we, when we start to understand the relative effect sizes of these therapies, we might be able to better, more rationally decide how we select agents for patients. I mean, we haven't even got to the point about talking about different mechanisms of action, whether there might be utility in that. And, and I know Sarah wrote this beautiful um, editorial in the Alliance of Rheumatology uh, a couple of months ago about trying to select, um, about trying to, to navigate that agent um, selection, um, you know, in the GCA PMR space. But um, I think that it's entirely possible that some patients um, may well just um just need a little bit of methotrexate, but some patients are definitely going to need cerulumab. How how do we see kind of cerulumab uh, getting in in the U.S. practice, uh, Dr. Spire or Anisha? Um, I kind of think you know you're probably not going to see people. I, my bet would be you're not going to see people moving forward 
having to fail methotrexate from a regular, I'm sorry, from an access standpoint, there's nothing in the labeling about that. And, um, you know, it would be this journey for patients is a painful journey. These are the relapsing patients who are probably suffering with steroid side effects already. If you look at this, at the Safford trial, these patients had been on steroids. There was a really mean, very long duration of steroid exposure in these patients. And they had to relapse within a few months of coming in, but many of them had many relapses. So that's who we encounter in practice. And I think if you're encountering a relapsing patient and you have an approved therapy with pretty convincing evidence behind it, I think you'll see people moving more towards that earlier. I think there's going to be a, a period of time where people have to get more comfortable with this. Rheumatologists are already comfortable with IL-6 inhib inhibitors. Um, so I don't think that's the issue, but this drug was only approved in the U.S., eight months ago. And there was only a manuscript to look at one week ago, um, not even. So I think that there's going to take some time for people to become appropriately take time for rheumatologists to be comfortable with the data, be comfortable, you know, with where this fits in there. But I, I think there's pretty, uh, like for me, it would be a pretty early steroid. It would be the early steroid sparing drug. And I'd probably use it pretty early in a relapsing patient. Yeah. Anything I, I, to add to that? No, I agree. I would probably be in the pink box here at this point because I haven't had issues with access and there hasn't been pushback in terms of having to fill methotrexate and um, titration isn't an issue. I don't have to worry about what my max dose is to get the disease under control before I start pulling back on the steroids. I just know I can start the medicine and then start the taper. And so for me, from a clinical practice convenience standpoint, obviously oh. totally taking cost out of the picture, um, I think that would be what I'd be in the pink box. So I think that's a nice segue to actually, yes, the next slide. Um, so because we're talking about when are we using, this is just a nice kind of study that really reflects the, sur the, uh, the survey that was done that actually shows still that steroid-sparing agents actually are used only in a minority of patients with, that are under rheumatology care. But going a little bit further, and I have the, we can go to the next slide actually. Uh, I have a little bit of the, the EC kind of out with this because I get uh, Dr. Spira, who's the, senior, the first author for this study, to actually walk us a little bit through this. And I would certainly like some time to, yes, understand how SAFR and how we can extrapolate data of SAFR. But then also the question that David already brought up is like, what is early? Uh, what about earlier? What should we, we should be shooting for? But um, Dr. Spira, if you want to walk us through this, I think that would be fantastic for the audience. Yeah, so it was a little bit of a complicated design, but not that complicated a design in other ways, but it's important to know what the comparison was. So first of all, these were refractory patients. They had to have been on, um, they had to have at least had at least one flare during a glucocorticoid taper, but while still on more than seven and a half milligrams of steroids, and they had to have more than eight weeks of steroid therapy overall. So it, I would say it's not rare for me to be able to get a patient down to seven and a half milligrams of, of prednisone within two to three months. These people had to flare while still on greater than 7.5 milligrams of daily prednisone, you know, within three months prior to screening. So these were a refractory group. Um, I'd have to look back and see what the um, mean duration of disease was, but it, but it was pretty long in both groups and that was well balanced. But then you were randomized to go up to 15 milligrams of prednisone in both groups. 
And then if you were getting active therapy, you had a very rapid steroid taper to zero in a refractory patient from 15 to zero over 14 weeks. And by week 12, you were already on trivial doses of steroids, maybe one or two Mm -hmm. milligrams. If you were, and you would get active cerulemab. If you were on placebo, you got a 50, a much more conventional 52 week steroid taper. And then um, I guess, you know, and the, the primary outcome was relapse was relapse free remission at week 52, which and relapse free remission. Mm-hmm. I think this might be, do you have more slides on this or, or. Yeah, um, so that was, that was the median, the median duration actually was 300 days uh, yeah. for, for both groups. So, which, which clearly reflects as well, the, the practice, right. Where, where a lot of patients actually get to rheumatologists as well. And certainly that some of the caveats to research can we go to the next slide as well with the, the primary outcome. There we go. Right. So again, keep in mind that these were patients who were on steroids for a mean duration of, you know, like a long time. This was a year into the disease and they still flared on more than seven and a half. So I think this really defined a refractory group. I think the study did a good job doing that. To be defined as having sustained remission, though, at week 52, you had to have no PMR signs or symptoms by week 12. So I think at that point, you were on one or two milligrams of prednisone. Remember, after a mean of a full year and still flaring in the prior three months while on more than seven and a half milligrams of prednisone, you had to be down to one or two milligrams and have no signs or symptoms by week 12. You had to have no flares over the subsequent year. Remember um, with 38 of those weeks being off steroids, a sustained normal CRP. Now we know cerilumab normalizes CRP, but there are still some patients who can bump their CRP to just above normal. And then you had to adhere obviously to the prednisone taper. And um, the likelihood of you having achieved that outcome if you were on active therapy was about threefold higher than if you were treated with placebo, even though you were on a much longer course of steroids with placebo. Um, So this was a pretty impressive result. I don't know whether we captured, and then it, so that was true for the overall primary outcome, but each component of the primary outcome also favored cerilumab. So your likelihood of being in remission by week 12, remember on, on active drug, you were only on one or two milligrams. So that speaks to a relatively rapid onset of action. Whereas if you were on um, placebo, you were probably on about 10 milligrams at that point. In terms of absence of flares, normalization, sustained normalization of CRP, that's not surprising. You know, in adherence to the prednisone taper, you were more likely to not be able to do so if you flared. So um, ultimately, about 30% of people on active drug achieved the primary outcome versus only 10% of those on placebo. And if you, you know, take out the CRP, because that might be biasing things towards cerilumab, same thing, about 32% versus 14% favoring cerilumab. So, uh, in kind of in this line, so I don't think we can actually skip this. this yeah, we this can skip that. I, uh, can I, can but, I mention one other but, thing super quickly, though, Sebastian? The other thing I thought was real important in that study, which we didn't emphasize in the manuscript because it wasn't a primary outcome and it wasn't robust enough of a difference, but the quality of life and function outcomes all 
favored cerilumab. So it wasn't just like, great, we show that people have less steroids, total less steroids and less flares. You could say, well, what's the big deal? You flare, you raise your prednisone a little bit, big deal. These patients' quality of life in a blinded study was better. And facet fatigue was better, SF36. So I think all of that stuff in the end of the day is what's going to be the most important thing to our patient experience. And, and that's certainly something important to mention as well, since it was across the board. I think kind of in line a little bit with, the, with your comment initially about PMR spare, and then David kind of poking on the topic as well. Uh, I think the, the one thing unique about PMR compared to a lot of other conditions is that we talk about, you know, drug-free remission. It's a concept that we actually, you know, do play with and we see. And, like, uh, and it's not necessarily something that we discuss about uh, with a lot of our diseases. So is that something that we should be aiming for, that kind of the next phase of uh, suffer or the, the, the drugs that come after is certainly challenging the steroid papers, but at the same time thinking of maybe earlier, similar to how the sign of PMR spare was, to really not only say less steroids or people of steroids, but people of everything. I don't know if anyone wants to jump on that, which is certainly not a, an easy question, and we don't, we're running out of time. But Well, Anisha, uh, you know my approach yeah, to that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I tend to, for, certainly for the steroids, and now with the good steroid-sparing medication on board or, or available, I think that approach is justified um, to have a low threshold for tapering relatively quickly, even if you're targeting a six-month taper or a four-month taper, um, as opposed to our traditional longer taper, with the recognition you can intervene. The question of how long to continue an, uh, an advanced therapy like an IL-6 inhibitor is totally unanswered um, in this trial um, or by the SPARE trial, because they didn't report results beyond half a year. Okay. Anyone, any other thoughts on this, David? I, think you're I mean, I, I will know. say that I guess okay. I wonder whether we just need to, um, it will end up being a different uh, treatment paradigm to some extent, well, different uh, paradigm in terms of how we study um, treatments in a newly diagnosed PMR. Um, I should say, Claire O and I have got a editorial coming in Lancet Rheumatology, and I'm really looking forward as well to um, Rob's debate with Phil Seo at, at the upcoming ACR um, Convergence, possibly the highlight of the entire meeting, um, chaired by you, Sebastian, of course. But the... Um, I, I think the kind of thing is in that newly diagnosed space, I guess we've got to try and ask ourselves, what are we aiming for? And I mean, part of that might be early remission, but trying to look at analogies and other diseases and thinking about what we might be trying to achieve. Obviously, some of it may well be that steroid sparing effect. And I guess we look at, um, say, tofacitinib in the PMR East study from China and saw that potential steroid sparing effect in that early space of time, maybe that's a, a benefit that may be realized. And I guess what we really hope for is that this may well be a disease modifying uh, type of process that potentially if we intervene early enough and if it if PMR is the kind of disease where immunological, I don't think we know this, but immunological evolution does occur over the course of time. If we can try and intervene early enough, then potentially we can't, we could actually modify the course of the disease, increase the likelihood of a, of a drug-free remission. I think that would be ideally what I'd like to show. Would we be able to show that there's reduced damage either from disease or from therapy early on? You know, and I guess that might be something we might consider as well in terms of the glucocoid um, toxicity burden and then potentially any, any actual disease um, burden from, so any damage burden from the disease itself. 
So these are the questions we need to be asking ourselves about early therapy. Having said that, I think that if I was a patient with polymyodramatica, newly diagnosed polymyodramatica, and I'm a little young for that, but I'd, if I was in that situation, I I could uh, I I would be really keen to take some serum the map. So I think we have our last four or three minutes of this, and I have a one quick fire question for everyone, like simple yes or no answer, or like two more words after that. Is it the right time to actually revisit uh, guidelines and recommendations for the treatment of patients with PMR? We have new evidence, we have new therapeutics, and most importantly, I think we are highlighting the role to make room for PMR and, and our participation in earlier care of these patients as well. So we'll start with Anisha. Uh, yes. Time to revisit, time to revisit <laughs> guidelines? I mean, I think the guidelines are great, but I think that all guidelines need to be a consistent, up, like consistently updated in order to it, like in, involve the, the newest information that we're gathering. And I do think we've made some interesting headway in the last many years. And so, yeah. Dr. Spira. Yes, definitely. And Sebastian, this would be a good ACR ULAR initiative for you to lead. <laughs> Sarah, I think you all are actually updating guidelines, right? The BSR? Oh, yes. Yeah. So Max okay. uh, Yates is uh, leading that, and I'm supporting him in doing some guidelines for the BSR. But yes, absolutely. We need ACR ULAR guidelines update for PMR. We're, we've had trials, which are really exciting, and they need to be, you know, the update needs to happen. We need to roll those in. So, yeah. David, you're not allowed to say no. If not, you're going to get, you know, a lot of heavy <laughs> eyes on you. Uh, I wouldn't dare. But I, I just hope that, you know, this month, this this PMR campaign month on Room Now, SAFA study, the um, I think everything that is happening in PMR at the moment. I just hope this is a this is a watershed time for polymyodramatica and that we can actually kick on here to be able to bring people living with polymyodramatica the kind of care they deserve across all domains of their of, of, of management. So um yeah, I hope we look back on maybe this meeting just today here, the people who've dialed in live, people who are listening to this and think this is a this was a time when it all started to change. Anything else exciting in the pipeline uh for PMR? We were in the time of PMR back in the spotlight. Anything else that we want to see that is cooking that we know is coming our way? Agent-wise, I think we have, we've talked about, we've seen PMR East. Uh, I think there's also Sakikinumab uh, kind of trials. Uh, we have the Flunomide trial as well. Again, just, we're finally talking about different options, which is again, the right the right time for this. I don't know if I missed anything or someone is aware of any, any other therapeutic or any other options that we're gonna have. That's the uh, Retux trial. So Bridge was a very, very small proof of concept trial, which, surprised a lot of people by showing um, a, an interesting result. So there's a reduced PMR1 and reduced PMR2, which are on clinicaltrials.gov now for sort of more large scale phase three retux trials, for PMR uh, for new onset and relapsing. So um, that's going to be really interesting to see what they show. Well, I think that would be a conversation that would take a, an hour by itself. Uh, with a lot of opinions on it. But with that, I want to thank the four of you. I think it's been my pleasure to have you all, uh, especially, you know, people that I, I kind of admire a lot and I think are certainly leading the field. And also to the audience, uh, do tune in next week for the fourth TNR, which is actually going to be in controversy. So I think that one's going to be a fun as well. There's, we have a lot of new information for, for PMR, but there's certainly a lot of things that we still have different opinions on and actually uh, questions that we need to answer. 
So with that, it's almost 8 p.m. Uh, thank you, everyone, as well. And with that, we say good night or good night for Sarah or good day for David. <laughs> bye, guys. Nice seeing you all and talking to you. Good seeing you. Bye-bye. Bye, thanks.